And uh, this story we're going to be looking at in Luke's Gospel today is actually a story that, that really helps us make um, some of the most important decisions in our lives, believe it or not. There's some really great decision-making that goes on in the background of this passage. But we've got to look at well, what, what's even going on in this story. You've maybe heard it before, done a Bible study on it before. And over the years, this little story at the tail end of Luke chapter 10, uh, there's been quite a few suggestions made as to what the story is all about. Uh, some people have suggested that um, this story with Jesus meeting Mary and Martha, well, it's, it's about that it's better to pray and study the Bible than it is to serve. Some people said that that's what the story is all about. It's not. Uh, some people have said, well, maybe this story is about like gender roles in the church because you've got you know, Mary and Martha, and they're a little, Martha's a little bit upset that Mary's not doing what she's supposed to do, and that's, that's what the story is about. In fact, uh, somebody once suggested this, but I don't, I don't think they made it too far. Uh, I think they got in a lot of trouble for this. I'm just saying, well, the story's just about how women just worry. Women are just going to worry more than men, and I don't think he made it too far out the door and he said that one, so that one got nixed pretty quick. But if we want to really know what this, this story is about, we've got to look at a few clues and details in the text, particularly, we need to look at how Jesus reacts to a question that Martha gives. So here's the story, Luke chapter 10, verse 38, goes like this. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Any of you ever did that? Go, Mom, Mom, they're playing with all of my toys. They won't, they won't share. Can you tell them to... Anyone, anyone ever do that? No? Okay, just me. So Jesus replies, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So if we want to really know what's going on, we got we to gotta pick up on some, uh, some social clues, some little details that aren't exactly immediate or obvious to us in the course of the story. Martha's upset that Mary isn't helping her, but there's some cultural dynamics going on there. Because back in, back in those days, hospitality was a huge deal in the ancient world. There were not really like hotels and all of that, so, so where did you stay? Where did you live? Well, you had to find a place, you had to find someone's house who would open it up and let you come in and stay with them. And so what that meant is for Martha to honor Jesus, for Martha to do what is expected of her in that culture, in that place. She needs to get the house cleaned up. She needs to get a nice meal prepared for Jesus. That's her job. And so she's busy doing that, and Mary here isn't doing her job. She's not helping out. That's what she's supposed to do. That's what's expected of her. But it goes deeper than that. You see, in the first century, men hung out in the living room, and women hung out in the kitchen. Now, maybe that hasn't always changed too much. Maybe some of you can even think, well, you know, we got together for a gathering, and the guys were in the living room around the TV, and the girls were hanging out in the kitchen. Sometimes that just happens, but back then, that was like a rule. The guys sat in the living room, and they talked and discussed things, and the ladies stayed in the kitchen preparing the meal. That's just what you did. 
So Mary's not where she's supposed to be. But it goes a little deeper than that. The only people who were allowed to sit at the feet of rabbis were men, because that meant you would sit and listen to their teaching. So Mary is not supposed to be at the feet of Jesus listening to his teaching. She's not allowed to do that. Only the men are. So Martha's mad because Mary's not helping her. Mary's not where she's supposed to be. Mary's not doing what's expected of her. She's breaking all the rules. And Martha's a little bit frustrated by that. And so she asks this question. Now, she asks this question in such a way that she's expecting a yes answer from Jesus. She expects that what Jesus will say, because he cares about her, is to say, now Mary, your sister's right, you need to go on in there, help her finish dinner, help out. But that's not what he does. Notice how he answers her, because that's kind of the point of the story. He says, Martha, Martha, which is a way you say someone's name twice because you care about them. So he's, this is not Jesus angry, this is Jesus being kind and patient. He says, Martha, Martha, what's he tell her? You are worried and upset about so many things. He doesn't say, now Martha, you know what? You shouldn't be cooking right now. You should be in here. That's what she, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say what she's doing is bad or sinful or evil. But he says, you're just so worried and you're just so upset about it. That, that's not what you're supposed to be doing right now. You're not supposed to be upset. You're not supposed to be worried about all of those things. It's not that what Martha is doing is bad. It's how she's going about it. That's what's dangerous to her. It's the fact that she is worried, she's upset, she's burdened about all the activities she's trying to do to get the house ready for Jesus. Because the goal of hospitality is to enjoy the company of your guest. It isn't about the meal you ate. It isn't about if your house is in perfect shape. It isn't about everything going on schedule and according to plan. As some of you know this. Like, you've had visitors to your home, you've had guests over, and things probably didn't go the way you wanted. Like, there was maybe a little spot in your house that you didn't get clean as much as you want, and you just hope, I hope they don't go in there. I hope they don't open the closet. I just hope, just don't do that. Just don't look under the couch. Whatever you do, don't, I just hope that doesn't happen. Or maybe you were preparing dinner and it wasn't quite, it wasn't quite up to your standard, but it was still good. And maybe something even went terribly wrong and you all laugh about it now. Because the point is not the meal, it's not getting everything clean, it's enjoying the company. That's what it's all about. And Martha is in danger of being so distracted by the work of hospitality that she's going to miss the point of hospitality. The point is to enjoy this time with Jesus, enjoy the company that's there. So the point of the story is simply this. Choose the better Jesus has for you than the good life has for you. Choose what Jesus has for you, which is better than what life has for you, which is good. There's nothing evil, there's nothing wrong. Mary is, Martha is not sinning by making dinner and, and doing all these things that she needs to do. She's doing what's good. She's, in fact, doing exactly what is expected of her, what she's been taught and told her whole life, this is what you do when someone comes over. Jesus just says, there's, there's a better option out there, Martha. There's something better that you can do. And many times when we have decisions to make, we have different options on the table, a lot of us just think, well, there's a good option and there's a bad option. Like there's what I'm supposed to do and what I shouldn't do. Actually, so many times, it's not between good and bad. There's a bad option, there's a good option, and there's a better option. 
And we just don't always stop to think about, well, what's the, what's the better option here? What's the better thing that I can do? And when you're, when you're kind of new to following Jesus and you're young in your faith, you'll typically think in very black and white terms. Like you'll think about what I shouldn't do and what I should do. What should I do to follow Jesus and what shouldn't I do because it'll be a sin or it'll get me in trouble. But as you mature in Christ, you'll begin to see there's actually a, there's usually a better option on the table. And so you have to be able to see bad, good, and better. And so sometimes we just have to figure out, well, what's the better option? Well, there's a very simple exercise you can do to help you see what is better. And it's simply you just make a list of 10 options. Just make 10 options. So when you've got a decision to go through, come up with at least 10 things that you could do. Some of them might just sound dumb. Like you, even in your head, you would never suggest it because in your head you're like, that sounds stupid. Why would we do that? But go ahead. Write it down. Get, get 10 things down. That's what you got to do. So you list your 10 options, even if some of them are silly or ridiculous, you're like, there's no way we would do that. Go ahead, write it down. And then you go back through your list once you've got your 10 and you evaluate each one. And sure, some of them you might just immediately cross it off, no way we're doing that one. But some of them you might be surprised because you would have dismissed it. And then after you look at it a little closer, you go, you know, that might not actually be such a bad idea. Like we could probably, we could probably actually do that one maybe. And that will open up your mind to realize there are so many more options on the table than you realized. It's not just between good and bad, but a lot of times there is a, a better option. And then, well, once you've got your options, well, how do you find which one's the better option? How do you know what that is? Well, better is always going to be connected to Jesus and his kingdom. Better won't always feel better. Sometimes better will feel pretty rough because it'll take some sacrifice on your part. It won't necessarily feel good. Sometimes better will go against what culture says you should do in that situation. It's going to be a little bit countercultural. And a lot of times better will require you to slow down and back up and pray about it before you make a decision. You'll have to really take some extra time to step back and look up and see what God has for you to do. So I try to think of just a few questions that we could ask ourselves to help us process if a decision we're making is really the better option. So here's five questions you can ask yourself. First, is the Spirit convicting me to do this? Because obviously if the Holy Spirit's telling you to do something, you should listen. You should do it. Second, what will make me more like Jesus? Which, which option on the table is going to help me look more like Jesus? Third, what is important about each option? Sometimes it's good to just think, well, if I do this, here are the, here's the impact, here's the things that can come of that. If I make this decision, here's the fruit from that, here's what could happen from that. And just to kind of weigh, weigh the, the options and what they can bring about. Fourth, does this create worry in me? Does it create anxiety in me? Because like Martha, she became worried and overburdened. She became anxious about all the things she had to do to get the house ready for Jesus. So you have to think, well, is this, is this option, is this decision making me very anxious and worried? That could, be, that could be a sign of what's going on. And fifth, and this may be the most important one, will this distract me from being a disciple of Jesus? Will it distract you? Because there's a lot of good options out there, but is it going to help you follow Jesus or is it going to be a distraction from following Jesus? Uh, there is this young couple who just, just a few years ago wanted to meet with their, 
um, their pastor because they, they wanted to give some money to the church. And so they showed up and they told their pastor, hey, pastor, you know, we're really excited. We've, we've saved up enough money to finally buy a house. And the pastor started to like congratulate them and say, oh, that's so great, so proud of you for you know, being financially wise and all that. And they said, no, 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 I don't think you understand why we're here. We're here because we want to give away the money we saved up for a house. Like we want to give it to some, something in the church that needs help, a person, a missionary. We just want to talk with you to see what, what could we help with? What could we do with that money? And the pastor started in on convincing them to keep their money and buy a house. It's like, no, 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 you don't... You, I'm sure when you buy a house, I mean, that's going to be financially better for you than renting forever. And, you know, think of the ministry opportunities with more space and a house, and that, that's probably better. And then partway through the conversation, the Holy Spirit kind of slapped him upside the head and made him realize what he was doing. And he was like, I should stop that. So he said, hey, why don't we pray about it for one more week, and then you come back, and, and I just want to make sure you really want to do this, and you're not going to regret it. So they went away for a week, came back the next week to his office, and said, yeah, we're very sure we want to give this money away. And so the pastor uh, helped them find, identify some projects in the church and some specific people who he knew needed some financial help. But that just shows you that sometimes giving away money like that is so upside down and so backwards, it goes so against what we're all told to do, that even pastors go, hold up, I don't know if you should do that. But for this couple in that moment, that was for them the better option. Now, does that mean all of us need to give away our down payments and never buy a house? No, but maybe, but also no. Because for them in that moment, they realized that that's what the Holy Spirit was calling them to do. The better option for them was not to buy a house right now, but to help somebody else out financially. And Jesus challenges us to trade kind of the story of our world, the, the story of our culture, the things that we've just always been told to do, and he challenges us to trade that story for his story. Because so many times we just, we just do what we've been told. We just do what everybody says. Well, that's just what you do. You just, at a certain point, you just buy a house. Why? Do we have to? Well, you just, that's just what you do. You just work that many hours at your job. Why? Do we have to? Is that what it takes to follow Jesus? And for a lot of us, there's a lot of good things that we're doing. But those good things are actually possibly distracting you from following Jesus. And one of the things that, that I've just noticed is when I ask people, hey, how are you doing? How's it going? The number one answer I get is not, oh, I'm good. It's, I'm busy. How are you doing? Busy. Okay, next week. How are you doing? Busy. Six months from now. How are you doing? Busy. Okay, still busy. And I get it. I mean, I get sometimes life is just, it's just busy. I mean, I remember when I was, uh, especially when I was in, like, grad school, I was just busy. I was working a job, I preached at a little church every Sunday, and I had, like, two or three classes. So I've got homework, I've got to log in and watch lectures, I've got all this stuff to read, I've got a sermon to prep, I've got a job to go to, and I would like to hang out with my friends, and I would like to kind of have a little bit of downtime, and it'd be nice if I could sleep a few hours, like, that'd be cool, but I was just busy. It was just busy for a while until I graduated, and that's just kind of what it is. And sometimes life is just busy, and there's not a whole lot you can do about it. But other times, life is busy, and there's actually a lot you can do about it. Because if you keep saying, I'm just, I'm just busy, just a busy season, how long are you going to keep saying it's a busy season before you have to admit you're just busy? Like your life is just busy. 
And a lot of times we don't even think about we actually have the control to change that. Like we have the power to make adjustments. Some of you could honestly, you could probably go to your boss and you could probably change your work hours a little bit. Or some of you are your own boss and you could just set some new rules and say, you know what? I'm not going to work more than this number of hours or that number of hours. Some of you could say no. Ooh, no? And upset somebody? Yeah, but you might have to every once in a while. Some of you could cut out some of your responsibilities and commitments. And it's not because those things are bad. Like, I'm sure you're doing a lot of good things. Like, your job is good, your, you know, the, the committees or the, the boards you sit on, those are all good things. But at some point, is it distracting you from Jesus? Is it not, is it not helping you anymore? Are you becoming like Martha and you're just overburdened and you're worried and you're just busy with so many things that you've missed the point? And not that those things are bad. It's not that you're sitting because you're on a committee or because you do this thing or that thing. It's just maybe there's something better you could do. Maybe there's just a better way you could do it. Now, for others of you, it's, you know, it's not, it's not work. It's not this committee or that thing or this commitment. For some of you, it's, it's sports. Some of you, it's, you're in school, and it's, it's sports. And look, sports are good. Being on a team is fun. I was in cross country when I was in high school, and I loved it. It was great. I loved being on a team, and I loved having my coach there to support me. It was great. But at some point, you've got to ask yourself the same question. Is this helping me follow, follow Jesus, or is it distracting me from, follow, from following Jesus? And maybe you've got to ask yourself, when there's sports and church at the same time, which one wins? And why? Because look, it's, it's a great investment. It's a good investment to play sports and be on a team, and you'll learn really great life lessons and have great memories. Those are all good things. But sports is not going to be the best investment in your life. But I can tell you, as, as you get older, what you do in high school sports and college sports, it, it just kind of fades a little more and a little more and a little more. And sure, it's cool. But, you know, when I was in, when I, some of you are way better athletes than me. When I was in high school, I did cross country and track. I was a distance runner. That was it. I was not good at anything else. I couldn't catch a football. I couldn't make a layup to save my life. I was just, just that wasn't me. But our best season as a cross country team, we got fourth in state, which meant we were just so close to getting at least a medal, but we didn't even make it. And I'm sure it would have been awesome if we could have won state one of those years. Because, I mean, we would sweep our conference. We would sweep our region. And then we'd go to state and get thrown through a buzzsaw. And I'm sure it would have been great if we could have won state. But at some point, winning or not winning state isn't going to make me a better husband or a better friend. Like, it's a great memory. But it's not going to be the most important thing to help me follow Jesus. And so many of us, I get it, because we all live in the same world. We all, we've heard the same things over and over again. The things like, well, that's just what you do. We live in America in the 21st century. This is just what you do. But sometimes we've got to stand and say, well, but why? And is that what Jesus would want us to do? We say things like, well, that's, you know, that's just the way it is. Or we say things like, well, that look good on a college application. Or we say things like, first one in the office, last one to leave. Or I'll die if I don't get to do this. Mom, Dad, please, you don't understand. If I miss this, my life is over. We say things like that. But sometimes you've got to challenge those stories with the stories of Jesus. Because let's be honest, okay? When you have a college application, let's just be honest, the colleges want you there. That's how they make money. 
So unless you're applying for like a really competitive scholarship or a really competitive program, you can have as much stuff on there as you want. And at some point they're like, well, yeah, we want you here. We, we need you in the dorms. We need you in the cafeteria food. We need you paying for credit hours. That's how we pay the bills around here. Let's just be honest about that. For some of us, we just say, well, that's just how it is. We work 40 hours a week, or we work 50 hours a week, or we work 60 hours a week, or we work 70 hours a week, or should I keep going? And why, why do we do that? Is it because the boss set that example and nobody wants to upset the boss? Is it because, well, if I'm going to get to the office first, I got to get there at 6 a.m. and then somebody shows up at 5.30, like, well, I guess I got to get there at 5.25. Because actually, it's probably not healthy to be the first in the office and the last to leave because that usually means something else in your life is getting sacrificed. You're burning the candles at both ends. In fact, there's one uh, CEO of a very large, high-powered company who said in a leadership podcast I listened to, he said if he finds employees getting to the office earlier than him and staying later than him, he has a serious conversation with them, and he says, if you don't come in later and leave sooner, I'm going to fire you. This is not healthy. And that's just what we've been told. This is just what you do. But sometimes we've got to challenge that and say, well, is that what Jesus called us to do? It's not that it's bad. It's not that it's evil. A lot of times it's good. A lot of times that's what it takes. But sometimes there's a better option on the table. And like Martha, we're allowing ourselves to get worried and burdened by so many things that don't actually matter as much as we think they do. So you've got to choose the better Jesus has for you over the good life has for you. And that's it. Life is going to have lots of good for you. But you've got to have the vision of Jesus to see what is better. So as I'm sure you're probably all aware of this by now, but about 90 minutes away from us in Wilmore, Kentucky, there's been a revival going on for about the last, I think, 15 days or so. Started uh, not last Wednesday, but the Wednesday before. And so this past week, on Tuesday afternoon, I just kind of drove down just to participate in it myself, just kind of be there and see it. And yeah, it was really cool. It was really cool to be in a room packed full of all kinds of people, of different, different generations, different backgrounds and nationalities, and just all worship God together. And it was very imperfect, like the band messed up a few times, the crowd messed up a lot of times. One time, uh, they had a, a guy on a cajon, which is like the little box drum you sit on, and he was trying to keep the rhythm, and the crowd was just like... And I'm like, oh, guys, get on beat. Let's, but nobody cared. Nobody cared. Everyone just enjoyed it. It was really great. But, of course, with so much going on, um, I just want us to think about how, as a church, we can respond to what's happening in Wilmore. Because we've used, kind of throughout um, the short history of America, we've used the word revival in a number of ways that we kind of get confused about what a revival is. Because some of you, I bet, when you hear revival, you think, oh, that's like a week-long thing at church. We bring in an outside pastor or evangelist, and during the day, they're going to go around with our pastor and meet people and go door-to-door. And then in the evenings, we'll all come together for a big service, and we'll bring our friends who don't follow Jesus, and that person's going to try to get them saved by the end of the week. That's what we do. But actually, that's not, like, if you expand church history and go across the world, that is not what a revival typically is. A revival is when the Holy Spirit wakes up God's people to their sins and builds them up to a greater faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. And a lot of times that looks a little more like what's happening in Wilmore. It's just confession and it's worship and it's focused on repentance and reconciliation. And that's what's going on in the middle of this revival. It's a group of college students 
who at that university realized we're not taking our relationship with Jesus very seriously, if at all, and we've turned worship into a performance. It's not really about Jesus, it's about us. And so they've been repenting of that, they've been confessing that, and that's why they've just been worshiping nonstop to worship Jesus in a very simple way. But revivals in church history, they always end about the same way. They always end in evangelism. Once God's people have recognized their sin and they're filled with joy and unity through worship that they've been forgiven, then they're empowered by the Holy Spirit to go out and do the hard work of God's mission. And that's always what happens next. And the great preacher Jonathan Edwards, during the First Great Awakening, um, there are a lot of uh, some cynicism and critiques of the First Great Awakening because a bunch of really weird, crazy, like, over-the-top stuff started to happen. And he said, with revivals, he, he coined this phrase, you have to focus on what happens, he called it, in the main. Which meant, when a revival happens, it's going to draw a bunch of extra attention, and the enemy is going to try to oppose it and stop it and distract from it, and you're going to have a bunch of people with not-so-great motives show up, and weird things are going to happen that's probably not God's work. So he said, you just got to focus on what's in the main. What's the center of the revival? Why did it start? Why is it happening? And so for us, we have to remember, in the main of this revival, it is college students. It's the next generation saying, we did not take our relationship with Jesus very seriously, and we've made worship all about us, and we don't want that to continue. And there's definitely things we can learn from them. So here's three specific ways that as a church we can respond to what's happening in Wilmore. First, is we can seek God's presence here and now in your normal life as much as people are seeking it right now in Wilmore. God is just as present here as he is there. You do not need to drive 90 minutes and stand in a three to five hour line to worship God. That's what Jesus did for us. Paul, in a sermon he gave that's recorded in Acts chapter 17, he said this, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. He's not far from any one of us. If you want to find God, you can. He is not hiding from you. He is not. And you can find him just as much here at church on Sunday or in your small groups or even when you're studying the Bible or praying to him on your own. You can find him. Second, let your Christian life be described as a long obedience in the same direction. That's a phrase Eugene Peterson coined. I just love it. Let your life be described as a long obedience in the same direction. Because the work that God is doing, and that he typically we see him do in revivals, it's like he's condensing years and years of ministry into just a few hours or a few days, which means it's extraordinary. You can see the change quickly, and it's powerful, and it's impactful. But what God does, sometimes in his wisdom, in just a few days or a few weeks, he also, in his wisdom, will do it in your life over years. Because God, in his wisdom, he decided to have this revival for these students at Asbury. But also, in God's wisdom, he's doing the exact same thing in your life. And it may just happen after years and years and years of reading scripture and praying and serving and fighting against sin and finding ways to serve and plug in and listening to lots of sermons and getting it wrong a few times. But what happens in an extraordinary situation like revival also happens in the ordinary, the daily in and out stuff of following Jesus. And God in his wisdom knows when we need each. 
So no matter what, whether it's the extraordinary or the ordinary, be able to look back on your life and say, I just, I have this long obedience in the same direction. I just kept following God. I just kept going in the same direction. I was faithful. And third, pray for revival. But if you pray for revival, I'm going to caution you, you're going to have to change your expectations. There's a historian of revivals named J. J. Edwin Orr, and he said this. He said, we really don't understand what we are praying for when we pray for revival. We think we are praying for ecstasy, and yes, joy is a byproduct of revival, but true revival doesn't begin in ecstasy. It begins with agony. It doesn't begin with laughter, but with tears. So pray for revival, but you might need to change your expectation. Revival is not the beginning of just this huge energetic worship service. Revival begins with realizing our sin and how far we've fallen from what God has been asking us to do. It's when we confess that sin. It's when in humility we recognize we're far off the mark. And we begin to repent and reconcile with others to get back on track. And so, yeah, we're going to pray for revival. And however God in his wisdom wants to do that, if he wants to do that in extraordinary ways like what's happening at Wilmore, awesome. But if he wants to continue to do that in ordinary, everyday ways, great. Either way, don't give up. And be ready, be ready, because you might, that might mean you may have to do some difficult things yourself. So towards the end of this story, Jesus says to Martha, he says, Martha, few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that few things are needed, or indeed, only one? Because most of us, we think we need to fill our lives with as much as we can. If we just pack our lives and our schedules full of activities, that's how we will be satisfied. That's how we will be successful. But do you really believe that maybe you just need one thing? You don't need many things. You just need one thing. And sometimes, yes, we fill our lives with bad things that aren't wise, and other times we fill our lives with really good things. But Jesus, he definitely doesn't want your life to be bad, but he also just doesn't want your life to be good. He wants your life to be better. But if you want your life to be better the way Jesus does, there's only one way that's going to happen. And that's if you truly follow him. And the instructions to that are so simple for all of us. They're very simple instructions to commit to Jesus, but it's living out that commitment that gets hard. Because life can be challenging. Sometimes it gets boring. Sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes we just kind of fall asleep to what's going on around us. And so if you've never decided to follow Jesus and been baptized, then here in a little bit, the worship team's going to come up and lead us through one more psalm. And if that's you, you can just come right down here to this front row. I'll be sitting right here in this chair, and you can talk with me about what would it look like to commit to following Jesus? What's that going to take? But for those of us who've been following Jesus for a long time, maybe what we need to do during this next psalm is, maybe for us, we need to confess some things. We need to repent of sin. We need to recognize that, that maybe when we look at the example of the college students 90 minutes from here, we go, you know what, worship's been an awful lot about me and not a lot about Jesus. Or maybe there's something else in your life that you just need to confess to Jesus in these next few minutes and do the hard work of repentance. And so you can do that right where you're sitting, or if, or if you want to, you can come down here on these steps and kneel if that's something that you want to do that'd be meaningful for you. 
But whatever the posture is, whether it's standing or sitting where you're at or, or kneeling somewhere in the room, let's use the next few minutes to either follow Jesus or confess where we've maybe fallen short, where we've missed the mark, where we have let a lot of good things distract us from what Jesus is calling us to. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I'm so thankful for your, um, your example and that you showed us how to live, how to live not just a good life, but, but a better life. And I'm so thankful for your grace and your mercy for all the times that we fail and we fall short and we, we sin again and again. And I'm so thankful that you are always there to keep forgiving us um, and that your Holy Spirit is always at the ready to continue to transform us and prepare us for what you have next in our lives. And Father, I pray um, for revival here in this church, for revival at college campuses across the country and across, um, across this nation and this world. And God, whether in your wisdom you want to do that with, with incredible, um, unceasing times of worship and prayer and confession, or whether you want to do that just day in and day out in small changes in our lives. Help us to be open and receptive to whatever your will is. And God, help us to continue to be obedient to you and your calling in our life. God, help us to listen to the Holy Spirit and allow us to have the humility to be convicted when, when maybe we've been making really bad decisions or maybe we've just been making good decisions, but you actually have something much better for us to do. Help us to be open to your will, God, in our lives. It's in your name that I pray all of this. Amen.